You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Good morning. kind of want to go with them and see what happens, but anyway. Hey, thank you for letting me come and hang out with you for three weeks. It's been really great. It has been delightful to get to know a bunch of you and to be in your area, your beautiful area. I am content to live in Wisconsin Rapids, but I'd rather live in Rapid City. Truth be told. You have the Black Hills. So, great, great place. So, back at that table, I have sign-up sheets to get on, get my weekly blog and monthly newsletter, and a sign-up sheet, more importantly, for next Saturday for listening sessions, 55 minutes. If this is your church, if you attend this church, and I haven't talked to you yet, interviewed you, I sure would like to, so sign yourself up back there. If you can't do next Saturday, contact me and let's get together during a week. So I'm meeting with people at all kinds of times and places and just making it work. So, And there are books back there that I would love to sell you, brochures I'd like to give you, and if we haven't met, I'd like to meet you, so I'll hang out back there a bit after we're done. Okay, enough advertising. Would you take uh, any sort of Bible you have, paper or plastic, and will you turn to Philippians chapter 1, where we heard some reading a bit ago. Philippians 1, if you're using an electronic Bible, you might want to choose the New International Version. And there's room in the bulletin to put some notes as we go. So I'm going to ask you to try to picture a scene with me. You're meeting with your church. It's small enough to meet in the living room of a wealthy businesswoman's house, and you're happy to be with your church people. And it's a really special day because instead of a sermon, one of your elders is reading a letter, a letter from the church planting missionary who planted your church just a few years ago, and you love this guy, and this guy loves you, and you know it. You've got a relationship with him, and so elder so-and-so is sitting over there reading the letter, and it starts out so sweet, and then a few minutes into it, there's, there's just a little hint that maybe this guy knows about the troubles that we're having because we've have a problem here, but I wonder how he found out. I think maybe it was that guy who brought him a financial gift from our church and was with him. Maybe, maybe he ratted on us, you know? So the letter continues, and it seems to be okay, and uh, you're, kinda, you're trying to keep your mind off that and not think about it every moment. And then, and then all of a sudden, the reader pauses, takes a breath. And he reads, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord. Dear friends, I plead with Euodia, sitting over there, and I plead with Syntyche, sitting over there, to agree with each other in the Lord. 
He's just sucked all the air out of the room. (laughs) Believe you me. And then he reads, Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, probably the elder reading the letter, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Okay, some of you probably figured out that I was talking about the church at Philippi in Macedonia 2,000 years ago. It's 61 AD, and the author of the letter is the Apostle Paul. And yet, it's really contemporary, isn't it? I mean, it could happen anytime, anywhere, except for the names Euodia and Syntyche. So, a word of caution. If God gives you two daughters, do not name them Euodia and Syntyche, okay? And I sure hope nobody here has already done that. But otherwise, sure sounds like a contemporary situation. Because even church leaders, and these were two great women. These were like, you know, the leader of the children's ministries and the leader of the women's ministry. Even church leaders find it hard to get along sometimes. So last week we saw that God has given Christians, the followers of Jesus, the gift of unity. God gave it, but we have to maintain it. We have to protect it if we're going to enjoy it. God does want us to enjoy it. We also saw last week that the stakes are much higher than just our enjoyment because when we as a church, a group of Christians, even if they're not called a church, when we love each other well, when we are truly unified, people who do not yet know Jesus will look at us and they will see from looking at us that these people have a a supernatural love in them and their Jesus must be real. It's powerful. And when we don't do that right, when people who don't know Jesus are looking at us and they don't see love and unity, what the message they are getting is that our Jesus is not real and his love is not real, which means that, as we said last week, our disunity is heresy. It's it's blasphemy. It's really bad. And therefore, we need to make an all-out effort to keep that unity. So, will you flash back with me to chapter 1 and find verse 27, which we heard just a bit earlier. So, this is the Apostle Paul's first hint in this really warm letter that there's something amiss in Philippi. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Now those words and the rest of that chapter are worthy of a sermon, but it's not going to be today because we're going to slide down to chapter 2 and the first four verses because the first four verses of chapter 2 reveal some resources that God has given us for protecting our God-given unity. In this wonderful age of grace in which we live, God doesn't just give us commands. 
He gives us commands, and then he gives us what we need, the resources we need to obey those commands and enjoy it. So here we have the unveiling of some resources. He begins with an argument in verse 1, which is followed by a plea, which is followed by a picture. So we begin with the argument at chapter 2, verse 1. Paul is using a type of argument. You could call it a figure of speech. You could call it an appeal. It's really common today. I don't know if it was common in his day or not, uh, but I know that it's common today. So here it is. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, here we go. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from His love, if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, if you have any tenderness and compassion, and we're going to stop right there at the comma. So the technique, which most of us have probably used at one time or another, looks like this. It's a three-part technique. The first part is the if you have any part of the argument. It's kind of a challenge. It's kind of an insult, actually. Um, if you're using this argument, you're, you're probably going to say, if you have any, and then you're going to mention something that you know that the person you're talking to has, certainly wouldn't want to say that he doesn't have, claims to have. So we're going to say something like, we're going to put, I'm going to put, we don't have a Fred here, right? No Freds? Okay, all right, I'm safe. So we're going to put Fred over here and say, Fred, if you have any brains... You've done this, right? If you have any common sense, if you have any decency, if you have any dignity, if you have any compassion, we wouldn't say all these things to one guy, but these are different, you know, situations. So, and then, second part, we make an appeal to someone or something that is going to be adversely affected by Fred's actions. So, and... Many people doing this are going to take God's name in vain. So they're going to say, for God's sake, for Christ's sake, right? That's taking God's name in vain because they're not thinking about God. They're not thinking about Christ. They just say it. Um, the rest of us are going to use a euphemism, right? A nice one like, for Pete's sake. Who's Pete anyway? You know, Pete was my childhood friend on the street because his last name was Peterson, but I don't know. For pity's sake, or my dad used to say, for cat's sake, and what the cat had to do with it, I, I don't know. I was allergic to the cat, so I didn't care about the cat, but anyway. And then the third part of the argument, we're going to say, for Pete's sake, if you have any compassion, then, then, then for cat's sake, and we're going to say something like, put down that knife, put down that gun, you know, stop the divorce proceedings. Step away from the ledge. Don't put the firecrackers in the toaster like my neighbor boy did. You know, don't try to see how fast dad's car can go tonight just because you got your driver's license today, you know. Stop the affair. Put the money back before you get caught. That's the argument. Got it? We've all done that. Paul loves these people, but he loves God more. So he's not afraid to challenge them or even insult them a little bit because he's really upset because he's crazy about this church. This is, this is the church that, 
You know, if Paul was going to quit being an apostle, we'd call him a missionary, and move to one place and join one church, it'd probably be Philippi. You know, that's how much he liked it. But he's, he's upset because he knows that disunity is heresy and it's blasphemy. So I shared last week when my church split in two when I was a 21-year-old, only been a Christian for, for two years, and I went to this meeting, and people stood up and denounced the pastor, and then they had a vote of confidence, and then they, they split, and then they started visiting other people to try to convince them to leave too, and I didn't have any chance to do so, but I, want, I wanted to get together with all those people and say, please, please. This is so much bigger than these issues you have with your pastor. Let's think about the reputation of the gospel. Let's think about the reputation of God. There's much more than the pastor's faults at issue here. And of course, I, I didn't get the chance to do that. Who was, nobody was listening to me. But as the years have rolled by, and I've worked with many churches, I find myself wanting to say and saying, before you share that gossip, before you chew out your friend, before you stand up in the business meeting and say something nasty, before you stomp out of that board meeting, before you give that guy a piece of your mind that you can't afford to lose, you know, before you send that email, for the sake of God's reputation, for the sake of Jesus' name, for the sake of the kingdom, don't do it. Please don't do it. Please don't do it. So getting back to the if you have any section here, the four if you have any items are actually powerful resources for our unity. And I think the best way to understand how these things contribute to our unity is to think of them as blessings that we have in common as Christians and that we enjoy together, and enjoying these things together leads to being together, worshiping together, working together. You want to be with people who are enjoying the same thing, which takes us back to the word fellowship, koinonia in the Greek, joint participation. And I'm going to make some homely illustrations. Please don't take offense to them, but there are things that humans experience together that are catalysts for their unity. Do you know what I mean? Like, we have a great meal together, and it's just, it, it bonds us together, that turkey and mashed potatoes and all that stuff, like at Thanksgiving. We hear great music together, and it's a bonding experience. We see great beauty together. Um, even experience something traumatic like combat together, you become a band of brothers. And frankly, bars are places where people are experiencing alcohol together, and drug houses are places where people are experiencing the drugs they are taking together. Anything we experience together helps us to get together, work together, stay together, sing together, worship together. So here we go. Here are four resources Paul knows that they have, that should have been keeping them together, and off we go. The first is encouragement from being united with Christ. And I need to stop and read the rest of that verse. I guess, actually, I did, but I'm going to read it again. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, 
If any comfort from His love, He knows they have it. If you have any fellowship with the Spirit, He knows they have it. If you have any tenderness and compassion. So, encouragement from being united with Christ. Now, granted, I'm not talking about the Greek word here. I'm just going to talk about the English word for a moment. But I do love the word encourage because you know what it means? It means put courage in. Put courage in. And we need it, right? I mean, we need courage just to get out of bed in the morning and go face life, right? I mean, it's hard. If you became a Christian as a child, you may not get what I'm about to say, and I hope you did become a Christian as a child. I hope you don't get this. But if you were a little older when you became a believer, you might have been like, like I was. I was miserable, I was pessimistic, negative, sarcastic, cynical. Only took me to 18 years to get that way. But at 18, I was exposed to a bunch of Christians about my age, and they were just the opposite. They were hopeful, they were smiley, they were cheerful, they obviously really liked each other, and it's, it's not like they had grown up in Baptist parsonage or, or something. They had been a bunch of dopers like me just you know, a few months or a couple years before. God had changed them. Becoming a believer gives you a whole new outlook on life, right? And that whole new outlook, by the way, is seen maybe most dramatically in our music, you know, you go into any Bible-believing church, and the music is mostly a whole lot of praise, right? A whole lot of worship. So before Christ, B.C., I was into the blues. And I'm, I mean, I wasn't just into the blues. I didn't just like blues. I had the blues. So I was really into it. And I would listen to these miserable blues artists who just made me more miserable as I listened to them. I loved it. I mean, they sounded like they were five minutes away from suicide, you know, these, these people, I won't name their names, but yeah, the encouragement from being united with Christ is wonderful, and it's made to be shared, it's made to be celebrated with each other, it's a powerful resource for our unity. Second, the second, if you have any resource, which he knew they had is comfort from His love. Comfort from His love. We could talk about this one all weekend. Love is so lacking in our world, right? In Matthew 24, Jesus spoke of a time when wickedness would increase, and He said, the love of most will grow cold. Wickedness increasing won't make you more loving. The love of most, he said, will grow cold. Man, if that isn't today. Second Timothy speaks of a time when people will be increasingly lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, but without love for other people and without love for God. Sound familiar? Oh, boy. Some of you probably grew up in loveless homes, I'm sorry if that was your experience. That's really tough. Some of you have a really hard time grasping the love of God because of the mom or the dad or both that you had. 
But when you became a believer in Jesus, you became an object of the infinite, eternal, unconditional covenant love of God. Romans 5 says the love of God is poured into our hearts. Ephesians depicts Christians being completely transformed as they get it, as they grasp the love of God. The letters of the apostle John are just full of stuff about receiving and passing on the love of God. God, if you're a believer, God wants you to to grasp how loved you you are. He wants you to get it, to drink deeply of it, to rest in it, to rejoice in it, to swim in it, to worship because of it, to live sacrificially because of it. The point is that God's love can be profoundly comforting. Hope it is for you. Christians experience it alone. We experience it together. We talk about how it feels. We share it with each other. It's a profound resource for our unity. His third, if you have any resource, if you have any fellowship with the Spirit, love this subject. Fellowship with the Spirit, the personal relationship with God that you have because of your faith in Jesus is made possible by way of the person of the Holy Spirit. He is the one who makes your relationship with God up close and personal. He enables you to understand the Bible. He enables you to, I'm going to go ahead and say it, He enables you to feel the love of God when you're reading the Bible. He prompts the believer to pray. He reminds the believer that she's loved by God. He's the one who transmits the comfort of his love. He guides us as we pray. Sometimes he prompts us to do something or not do something. Sometimes he speaks to us in a still, small voice. The fellowship that we have with the Spirit of God is an everyday wonderful blessing. We experience it alone, and we can experience it together. Acts 13, for instance, is one of my favorite examples of how church leadership should look. You have a bunch of church leaders praying and fasting before God, and the Holy Spirit spoke to them together as a group and told them the next thing their church should do. Wow. Fellowship of the Spirit. And then finally, the fourth, if you have any resource, is tenderness and compassion. If you have any tenderness and compassion, he knew they had it. Tenderness is probably referring to the special family love, that special bond that you feel for other believers in Jesus. You feel it with your biological family, hopefully, sometimes, (laughs) theoretically, right? At least at Christmas. You feel it with your fellow believers. Would you look back with me? Just turn a page to chapter 1 and look at 7 and 8. 1, 7 and 8. This is Paul's really touchy-feely section here. This is great stuff. He says, chapter 1, verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you. He's been talking about how much joy he receives just thinking about this church. 
He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. This guy, who before he was a Christian was really hateful, now has the privilege of feeling, experiencing the love of Jesus, the heart of Jesus beating in his own chest. And what a joy. What a joy to experience that. Wow. Paul says, if you have any compassion, probably a synonym for a word that's not in the NIV, but it's in our language all the time, empathy. Empathy. It's better than sympathy. Sympathy is feeling for. Empathy is feeling with. It's seeing the common humanness of the other person instead of just our differences. It's seeing that we're all the same. It's getting in the other person's shoes. It's understanding the other person until his behavior makes sense. Everybody's behavior makes sense if you really know their life. Jesus looked at the crowds, it says, with compassion. He could have looked at them with disgust, right? I mean, the crowds in Jesus' day would not have been any prettier than the crowds are today, okay? They would have been just as bad. And he looked at them with compassion. Now, this resource for unity is easy to understand. The tenderness and compassion we feel for other believers in Jesus are powerful resources for our unity. So that's the end of the argument. Paul knew they had these resources. He knew they had them in abundance. So he moves on to his plea, and I'm going to move much faster now so we won't We won't be here all day, I promise. But his plea is also in verse 2, where he says, Then make my joy complete. Now, this is different from the way you would normally do this argument. He didn't say for Pete's sake, for pity's sake, for cat's sake, whatever. He actually, in essence, said, for my sake, make my joy complete. Because back in chapter 1, He had said, and we won't turn back there now, but he had said right away in the letter, he said, every every time I think of your church, it gives me joy. I mean, every time, every time. But his joy wasn't (laughs) wasn't quite complete because he knew of this disunity problem that they had. So he's saying, if you will get your act together, Philippians, you'll make my joy complete. I'll be so joyful, I can't stand it. So, and then he shares a picture. It's, uh, you could call it a vision statement because it's Paul's dream for what the Philippian church can look like. So this is what it can look like if we really take advantage of our resources, if we really make this thing work. So I'm going to just give it to you very briefly. It's worth digging into in, your, in the future. But he says in verse 2, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests 
of others. So just really briefly, he starts with like-minded, like-minded, probably means the same thing as the phrase that's at the end of verse 2, one in spirit and purpose, like-minded or one in spirit and purpose. He did not mean a cultish giving up of our brains, okay? There was a, a book for teenagers a few years ago, maybe some of you saw it, it was called Don't Check Your Brains at the Door. Any of you remember that one? Don't, don't check your brains at the door. So he's not talking about a cultic kind of thing where we don't think the pastor says this is the way it is and then we all just get on board. That's not it. What he's talking about is agreeing on the most important things, agreeing to disagree agreeably regarding the not-so-important things, acting as one unit, back the language from verse chapter 1, verse 27, acting as one unit, acting as one body in Christ in the community, as if, as if we were one person, as if we didn't disagree on anything. That's the picture. His next part of this description, having the same love, and here it means love in action. Again, the body of Christ with the body members taking care of each other, loving each other in action. <clears throat> Excuse me, in verse 3, he mentions two negatives. He says, don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Now, ambition is good. I remember I was shocked when I first read that Jesus chose for his 12 guys in his training program, he chose ambitious young men. They were ambitious young men. But here what he's saying is don't do anything out of selfish ambition. Ambition is good if it's ambition for the kingdom of God. Or vain conceit, vain conceit which is showing off hot-dogging, attention-seeking. So, forthright admission here. Sin is so powerful. Sin is so sneaky. Sin is so deceitful that these things are real problems for those of us who lead churches. Anybody who gets up here, who gets up front, does stuff in church in front of people, you're going to be tempted with selfish ambition, you know, just kind of sliding over from ambition to selfish ambition, just kind of sliding from, from trying to do a great job preaching or teaching or singing or whatever you're doing up here, sliding into hot-dogging, showing off, grandstanding, trying to get people to like you. It's a, it's a real challenge. It is. And then he gets positive again, and we'll just finish it up. He says, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. And I, I've wrestled with that phrase for like 50 years. How can everybody consider everybody else better than they are? You ever think about that? I mean, how do you get through the doorway if you're saying, oh, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. No, you go first. Somebody's got to go first, right? And I think what Paul means is this. I think when we really get it, like he really got it, 
When we, really, when we really realize how holy God is and how sinful we are, we end up thinking like Paul thought, I'm the worst sinner on earth. And he said that, right? I'm the, I'm the worst. And what a, what a church we're going to have if we all really think, I'm the worst and you're not as bad as I am. <laughs> That's humility. And then he says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we care about their needs, your needs, not just my needs. It's not, this is my music stand, you know, and this is, this is my microphone, don't touch it. You know, this is my coffee pot, hands off. None of that. We're looking to the needs of others. And then he slides into verse 5, and we won't really go there, but he says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. This is the, uh, we call this the kenosis passage, which is a fancy word for the self-emptying of Christ, where in heaven he laid aside his glory, he laid aside, we like to say, the independent exercise of his divine attributes, the independent use of his powers as God to become a zygote, a conceptus in the womb of Mary, and then a baby, and then a sacrifice for us. It's the supreme example of a unity-producing meekness, humility, and love. There's our example. So here's the bottom line for this morning. God has given us the joy of unity as a gracious gift, and it's a powerful tool for proclaiming the gospel. It's a gracious gift, and it's a powerful tool. We have our challenges. We have the resources to meet those challenges, which we shared this morning. We enjoy them individually. We enjoy them together. They remind us that we are one. Four questions I want to ask you to pray about on your own just now. We'll give you a minute to do that. I'll do that too. Here they are. Have you begun enjoying these blessings? If Jesus is not your Savior, ask Him to become your Savior, the Lord of your life today. And these blessings will be yours. All that stuff, encouragement from being united with Christ, comfort from His love, fellowship with the Spirit, tenderness and compassion. Are you enjoying them now? Are you using these blessings to be a force for unity in your church? Are you a body part that is making your church better or worse? Would you talk to God about those questions, and then I think we're going to sing about it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for making us one. And thank you for not just telling us to act like we are one, but giving us the resources to make it work. We thank you that Redeeming Grace Church or any church where you are loved and worshipped 
we can enjoy an incredible unity that tells the onlooker that you are real. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.